All right. Okie dokie. Well, good evening. Thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, as promised, the prime rib uh, will be coming. We need about another 10 or 15 minutes for the corn pudding. She's putting a different uh, baking device tonight, so it takes a little longer. But uh, we have tonight Brian. Such milch, which most of you know from attending church, that is going to be sharing some of his testimony tonight. We asked him to, to come and, and share. And uh, if you haven't noticed, we're trying to make this a little bit more of a um, men's fellowship and uh, uh, time of being able to, to maybe have a testimony or something else instead of just coming together to eat. Um, and, and that's why we also kind of spread it out during the year a little bit. So. Uh, Brian is our uh, speaker tonight. We appreciate you uh, being willing to do this. And I'm going to turn it over to him. And I've heard his testimony, and I don't mean to run off, but I'm going to go get the food. <laughs> but uh, So I'm going to let him just take over. Okay? All right. Thanks, Brad. Uh, and, and before we go, maybe Bob, uh, it starts in prayer. those of you who don't know her, I already introduced myself. My name is Brian Sussmelch. I was born uh, in Eureka, California. I grew up in Blue Lake, went to Arcata High. I graduated in 1999. And uh, I'm not used to speaking in front of people, so you're going to have to bear with me if I get a little nervous or, you know, get off track. So I'll do the best that I can. <clears throat> so I was born in 1981, and I was born two months too early. It was a very, um, it was an emergency C-section, and the labor was brought on by intense stress um, from fighting between my mom and my dad. Um, I weighed three pounds, 14 ounces, and my left lung collapsed, and I spent the first three months of my life or so in an incubator with tubes going in and coming out of my chest that were inflating and draining my lung cavity. And I had about a 25 to 30 percent survivability rate, so it wasn't looking good. Um, I was born into a house that was, it was a rough house. The violence and hatred took precedence over any kind of love and encouragement. Um, the first memory that I can recall is probably about two years old. I was standing in the kitchen, and we lived in a single-wide mobile home. Um, my dad worked at a sawmill, and, you know, we I remember bags of groceries showing up on my porch. So it was, it was a pretty rough time for us and my family. Um, but the first thing that I can remember is the fighting. My dad was behind me. My mom was in front of me. And it was just a battle. And I remember seeing my mom's face as just the most angry person that I've ever seen. I don't remember what they were fighting about. But my mom went to the knife drawer, pulled out a knife, and took off after my dad. And my dad caught her arm, twisted it behind her back, and, you know, tossed her across the kitchen into a standing rack full of pots and pans. Now, this kind of set the tone for my childhood. And um, yeah, it was a little rough. Um, ironically, you know, as, as we got older and moved into a bigger house, um, we attended church. And 
the two governing phrases of my childhood were, you're a no good piece of, I wish you were never born, and if you ever tell anybody how I really am, I'll kill you. And so with that said, it was my job, and I knew better to, when we were at church, really pretend and put on a show that our, happy was the, our family was the happiest family that ever was. And we were good at it. I mean, if people were to find out back then how things were at home when the doors were closed, I don't think anybody would have believed it. Um, you know, I can't remember too many nights growing up where there was not fighting and yelling. And a lot of those times, the fights would carry out all throughout the night. And it was hard as a young child to cope with that and deal with that kind of intense hatred in my house and still have to go to school and function. And to make it worse, I got picked on a lot at school. So I dreaded being at school, and I dreaded having to go home because I knew what was waiting for me on the other side of the door. Um, there was even a time when um, I was actually attacked by my mom who came at me uh, with a knife, and I was on my top bunk reading a book. And she got about within arm's reach by the time my dad got there, grabbed her around the waist, pulled her off the bed, and was dragging her out of the room where she proceeded to yell and make threats that when my dad wasn't there in the morning and at work, that she would finish the job. So not only was I not sleeping because of the fighting that was going on, I didn't sleep at night out of fear of my mom making good on her promise and you know coming after me. Um, so when I turned eight years old, this was kind of like the turning point in my house when my mom's rage wasn't satisfied with fighting with my dad. And when I came home from school, I received pretty much the blunt of, of her rage. Um, it didn't take much to set her off, uh, but I learned early on that the best way for me to endure her attacks were to find myself a corner because her swinging ability was limited. She couldn't hit me as hard or as much. Um, so there was a lot of hardship in my house. Um, <clears throat> As time grew on, you know, we did things like we still, we, my brother and I were allowed to play baseball. Um, you know, we did all these things on the surface outside of our home that made us look like, you know, a good family. Things that were able, you know, ab enabled my parents to really conceal what was going on in our house. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was getting ready to go to baseball practice and the phone rang. And I answered the phone. And uh, the person on the other end said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a producer from the Oprah Winfrey Show. Is Tammy there? Now, Tammy's my mom, and I grew up in Blue Lake. So when I answered the phone and they said they were a producer from the Oprah Winfrey Show, I thought they were joking. So I handed my mom the phone and said it's a prank and went to practice. Well, halfway through uh, baseball practice, I heard skidding tires into the parking lot and looked up and when the dust settled, it was my mom. She jumped out of the car, and I thought for sure I was going to get yelled at or something, but she called me over to the fence, and she yelled out, hey, we're going to be on Oprah. Well, what are we going to be on Oprah for, I asked her. She said, uh, I can't tell you. The producers want your natural reaction to what the show's going to be about. And so not really knowing what to expect, I did get excited because that would be my first plane ride over to Chicago, <clears throat> which was fun. Um, I actually saw lightning strike near the wing, which scared me, but apparently it's safe up in the air. Um, when we landed in Chicago, we had a limo driver that picked us up, and they took us anywhere we wanted to go in Chicago. 
This was pretty fun. You know, we're a couple of hillbillies from Blue Lake, and we're in a limo, and they actually had a jar of grape poupon in the limo. <laughs> now, I don't know whose bright idea it was, but I would not be surprised if the city of Chicago banned all grape poupon jars from being in any limo. When we were stopped at red lights, my brother and I would roll down the windows and reenact every grape poupon commercial that we would see, just flat out annoying the driver. He put the privacy window up and everything. It was pretty fun. <laughs> So anyways, when the show was getting ready to get started, I started to get really nervous. We walked out into the seating area, you know, the stage, and they had four chairs or three chairs in the center of this 360-degree risers. I mean, full of people, probably 15 rows up. I could stand there and spin 360 degrees and just get lost in the unfamiliar faces. And then panic really started to hit me. Um, and it was an odd experience. You know, when you watch Oprah at home, you're so far removed from it. You know, you're used to hearing mom yelling at the TV when something's going on on Oprah. So when we're sitting there and Oprah's standing there and the music got started, I looked up at the monitors, and it's like you're watching the beginning of the Oprah show, but then when the opening montage finished, there's my face right there. Oh, wow. And uh, reality hit me. And uh, next thing you know, Oprah comes out and she says, uh, um, this is Sam. And, and Tammy and their son Brian, who's quickly approaching puberty. And, you know, I heard the word before, and I had my first sex education class probably a month earlier in seventh grade. So when the word puberty really registered, I got a real funny look on my face. And everybody thought it was funny, but then Oprah said Brian's parents feel that he's going to have sex too soon. Now, this was news to me. Nobody told me about this. This isn't a conversation that my parents decided to have with me in the privacy of our own living room. We had to go to Chicago on Oprah on national TV to talk about sex and how I'm, I'm going to have it too soon. So I exhausted my knowledge of uh, what I learned in sex education. Um, so they gave me a chance to talk, and I did a lot of uh, uh, didn't know what to say. And so that was pretty embarrassing. You know, it was bad enough that I got picked on at school. But when I got back after the show aired in Chicago, it was a lot worse. Um, so anyways, time went on. And my parents were together for 17 years. And it, it was just years and years and years of intense fighting. And it started to have a really profound effect on me in that I found myself caring a lot less about life. It hurt to care. It hurt to want my family to be a wholesome family. Um, I played football all four years in high school. I wrestled all four years in high school. And I had aspirations of doing something with myself. Um, however, my senior year, my parents separated. Um, I was 17 years old. And when my dad moved out of the house, I was there left to pick up the pieces and to really fight off my mom. And the violence kind of got worse, but I was 17 years old, and I'd been hit for a long time, so I was able to block most of her assaults. Um, then my dad heard um, through one of the neighbors that my mom had been, you know, really attacking me, hurting me, and so he came to school one day, and he told me, hey, you're going to come live with me, and I was really excited because my dad really didn't show too much interest in my well-being in the past. Um, so I got really hopeful, got really excited, and I moved into his house in Eureka <clears throat> and was still going to Arcata High School. And uh, after graduating, um, my dad had met this woman who lived in Carlotta, and 
he just became absent. He stopped coming around. Um, I didn't see him. He'd spend the nights, weekends away. Um, so I was kind of left to fend for myself, you know, still 17 years old. And the only conversation that my dad and I would have is, was about getting a job. Do you have a job yet? And, you know, I didn't know how, really know how to look for a job. I didn't have a car to apply for a job. So my dad ended up buying me a car, and he actually got me a job at a gas station in Arcata. And during this time, I'd say with all this free time and all this hurt, it was not easy to cope with life. And I found myself hanging out with a crowd that is not what you would call good people. Um, these are people that we would, you know, once I turned 18, we'd go to, you know, one of the clubs, dancing clubs in Eureka, and have after parties at my dad's house who was never around. Um, I started to get a lot of praise for these people for the bad things that I was doing. You know, I was smoking a lot of marijuana. I was drinking very, very heavily, um, you know, opening up my house, and, you know, everybody thought I was cool. And so that praise, in a way, made me feel good. That acceptance made me feel good. As wrong as it was, and as wrong as I knew that it was, it wasn't enough to stop me. Um, and it was just, you know, a snowball effect from there. Things just kept getting worse and worse. And... I was working at this gas station five days a week, and I would close the gas station. Um, now, my friends from Eureka would come and visit me, and it got to the point where I was not only making bad choices outside of work and you know partying with these guys, but I started to give stuff away from the store without paying for it. Gas, cigarettes, beer. Um, that's how much I didn't care. Um, it hurt way too bad to care. And... Uh, it wasn't long before my association with these guys would really um, cause a lot of problems in addition to my willingness to go along with what happened. I got a phone call one night uh, as I was getting ready to close the store, and it was one of my friends. He says, hey, <clears throat> I'm going to come rob you, and I want you to pretend when you call the police after I rob you, let me take the money. When I leave, you call the police, but I want you to pretend that you didn't know who it was and we'll give you some money. I protested. I knew that it was wrong. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, and I did everything that I could on the phone to prevent them from coming. What I got was, there's nothing you can do about it. If you tell anybody, you know, fill in the blank, um, you know what's going to happen. We're on our way. Click. They hung up the phone. And so I started to panic, and inside I was just screaming. I didn't know what to do. I was scared of what was going to happen. Um, I started to look out the windows, and there's a gas station, a Chevron adjacent to the gas station on the other side of the street where I was working, and there were two CHP cars in the parking lot. And it was, there was an out right there. All I had to do was run across the street, say, hey, this is what's going to happen. But I didn't. Um, I didn't call anybody. I didn't do anything except wait. Well, by the grace of God, my dad actually showed up, um, I'd say probably a half hour later, and he was there to fire me for, from the job because it was his clients um, that hired me and gave me the job. So he showed up to take away my car and to let me know that I was fired. And when we were outside talking about it, the guy that came out to rob, he came out from the shadows and went right into the shadow of my dad. And my dad turned around and ran him off in the middle of the night, <clears throat> which I was very happy about. Um, It gets worse. <laughs> so 
I wish I could say that that was enough for me to not to continue to associate and hang out with these guys, but it was not. Um, it got to the point where, you know, we since I didn't have a job, we kind of hung out every day. And I remember one day I was back in Arcata at a friend's house. They knew where I was, and they showed up, and they were ready. They had everything. They said, we're going to go rob the gas station, and you're coming with us. And I protested. I, I wasn't going to go with them and, and go rob anybody. Um, they threatened my life. And I've seen what they're capable of. And so um, even though I fought it, they were basically, they, they allowed me to stay behind. Well, they went and robbed the gas station. And then they came back to where I was at with a bag of money. And they gave me $200. And they said, you're coming with us to Sacramento. We're going to go down to Sacramento. We're going to hide out until all of this blows over. So I was scared. You know, I'm, I didn't really know what to do. But I knew that I was in over my head. I knew that I had crossed a line that I should not have crossed and that I was just as guilty as them because of my association, because of my willingness to let them in the store when I wasn't supposed to, my willingness to give things away, which really opened up the door for all of this to happen. Um, so they took me, and we all went down to Sacramento, and we went to a place, a college called Cosumnes River College in Elk Grove. Um, once we were there, uh, we went to the cafeteria, and one of the guys had a contact there. It was a female, and we met with her. And uh, we're sitting in the cafeteria, and they asked me to go buy everybody drinks from the concession stand. So I got up, and I'm standing in the concession stand line, and I turn around. I just knew something was wrong. I turn around, and they were gone. They were nowhere to be found. So I left the line, and I went walking around that campus looking for them, and they were gone. I mean, they left me in Sacramento. I mean, there was, I was, I, I grew up in Blue Lake. You know, I, I've been shaving my head like this since I was young because I started to go bald when I was 17 years old. And, you know, it's not really cool for a 17-year-old to be looking like, anyways, you know, I was, I was pretty scared. Um, <clears throat> walking around the campus, there was a woman who approached me, you know, she, she hit on me, and I kind of used this to my advantage. And I made up this story and this lie that would allow me to stay with her for the night while I tried to figure out what to do. Well, that one night and that one lie turned into three months' worth of lies and staying at her house. And it got to the point where I only had the single change of clothes. I didn't have really any food to eat. Um, yeah. We stayed in an apartment complex, um, and I was outside smoking a cigarette, and I was approached by a man, um, and he asked me, hey, do you have a bank account? I said, yeah, I have a bank account. He says, well, I have a stolen check. Um, if you deposit this into your account, I'll split it with you. I knew it was wrong, um, and I was tired of being a burden on the people that I was staying with, and that was my justification in my head. Well, if I can get this money, I'm already in trouble. I'm not caring about life. I really didn't. I was in over my head. It hurt too bad to try to care. Um, so I, I deposited that stolen check into my account. And they gave me half the money. And that money went to partying. I mean, I could not live with myself at night. I couldn't sleep. I, 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 I had to have something constantly going on. Music, movie, conversation, or be drunk and passed out because... 
I knew where I was. I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I, I just couldn't stand it. And it got to the point where um, I finally called my dad, and he knew something was going on. You know, the law enforcement was looking for me. Um, I mean, you know, they put two and two together. I just got fired. The place just got robbed. And uh, <clears throat> even though I wasn't there and robbed it, I was the prime suspect. And so my dad tells me, you know, you just really need to come turn yourself in and clear your name. So after about a couple of weeks of phone conversations, he finally talks me into it. And he came down to Sacramento and got me. And I went and turned myself into the Arcata Police Department where I was questioned about the robbery. And uh, I denied any and all knowing of the robbery, you know, trying to get out of it. And they didn't believe me. And they stuck me in jail at just over two months of being 18 years old, fresh out of high school. And I was charged with uh, armed robbery and grand theft for the stolen checks that I had cashed, which I admitted to um, because it was deposited in my account. I knew there was no way that I could get around it. And so <clears throat> but my first night in jail, I was sitting there, and you get what's called a discovery. It's, it's basically a copy of the police report pointing out evidence and the reason and you know, the probable cause of your arrest. And in that statement, there's a witness statement from the robbery, and her statement was is that there was a male with a white hockey mask on, who came into the store and a black male adult in the back and the guy in back while well, the person with the mask was doing the robbery was saying Brian let's go Brian hurry up Brian let's get out of here and once I saw that knowing that I wasn't there I, I knew that they had set me up and so I, I went to the correctional officer I said hey you, I need to talk with the detective on this case because I need to tell him what's going on and so I was able to talk with him and you know they went from charging me with armed robbery to accessory to armed robbery and they arrest those guys and they ended up doing prison time I got sentenced to seven years eight months in prison suspended which means I didn't have to go do that seven years eight months but they put me in for nine months in jail and gave me five years of felony probation and if I were to violate that probation then I would be sent to prison for that full seven years and eight months so here I am just fresh out of high school and 18 years old in jail which was probably the scariest thing that you know I've ever been through. And once in jail, there was no escaping myself. I couldn't hide. I couldn't run from it. I was surrounded by people that I vowed to steer clear of as a kid, and I was counted among them. I was one of them. There was, there was really no difference between myself and them. Um, and I remember this conversation that I had. You know, I, you sit there... In jail, and you can think of all these reasons why. Well, I did this because I had a bad childhood. I did this because of this and, and this and that, um, which is where I was kind of going in my head, you know, kind of blaming the parents type thing. But I was approached by an older man, probably 60, 65 years old. He asked, what are you in for? And I told him what I was in for, which is standard jailhouse conversation. And then I asked him, well, why are you in here? And this 60-plus-year-old man said, I'm in here because my mommy and daddy never gave up about me and a red flag went up, <laughs> and I saw myself on that same road blaming my parents right then and there, and I, I knew right then and there that if I was not going to be like a 60-something-year-old man sitting in jail, that I was going to have to take responsibility for my actions and change. And so I decided that that was what I was going to do. And, um, uh, you know, my view on the church and Christianity at that point was pretty well tainted. You know, going to church with my parents who were... Christians, my mom sang in the choir, 
but lived a different way at home. I, I had a perception of the church that everybody was like that. And so I wanted nothing to do with Christians or anybody um, until a pastor came in and he held a jailhouse, you know, a jailhouse church service where I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And um, I was motivated. I was so happy, you know, being forgiven and, and feeling that, that, that love and, and that forgiveness coming to Christ and really understanding that, hey, everything's going to be okay. Um, I was excited. And I was determined at that point to build a, a, a strong life, build a happy life, make something of myself, you know, grow up, have kids, you know, get a wife, have kids, and, and give them the life that I never had. Um, so I finally served my time in jail, and I got out, and I was on felony probation, and that's when I met a girl who had also come from a broken past, and she aspired to the same things that I did. She wanted a better life. She wanted to have a good, healthy family eventually. And so we initially bonded, and that's what kind of kept us together. Um, it was hard for me, fresh out of jail, um, to get a job anywhere. Um, you know, nobody wants to hire somebody who's got two felonies on their record. And, uh, you know, especially with no work experience and the one job you did have, you really screwed it up. I mean, you were put in a position of trust and you violated that trust. And so it was a hard time for me to get any kind of employment. I did get construction jobs that were either seasonal or for whatever reason didn't work out. Um, and I ended up moving with her uh, to Grass Valley because my uncle was able to get me a job stuff and insulation, you know, and new construction and, and remodels. And so I moved down to Grass Valley and I started stuff and fuzz. <coughs> yeah. So when we moved down there, we didn't have anything. I had a job. And I rented a room out of the same house that my uncle was renting a room out of. And I was determined to work my butt off and, and get the life that I, I was dreaming of, everything that I wanted. Um, the problem was I had no tools, you know, nothing, no, no foundation to stand on. I pretty much, uh, you know, abandoned Christianity. I didn't, yeah, I abandoned it. You know, I, I stopped praying, I stopped reading the Bible, and I, I thought I could do it on my own. I thought that my motivation was going to be enough. Um, so for three years, I spent trying to make a life for the two of us, um, but we fought a lot. You know, neither of us knew how to communicate. We all, all we knew how to do was yell and fight. And we almost broke up a bunch of times until we found out that she was pregnant. And that kind of gave our relationship a whole new birth. We were excited that we were going to have a son, even though it was in complete sin, outside of wedlock, shouldn't have been having sex, shouldn't have been doing any of it. Um, but I was happy. I was going to finally have a son, and I was going to finally be able to give him the life in my head that I never had. And Josiah was born um, in 2003, um, I couldn't believe that I was a dad. You know, looking at him for the first time, it it, it did something to me that still... And so uh, I was happy. Um, Sarah and I didn't fight as much. Uh, his mother and I, we didn't fight as much. Um, 
but I, I ended up, I was, I was building houses while she was pregnant. I got to back up here. I was building houses. I ended up getting real bad tendonitis and placed on workman's compensation. So I was able to be at home with Sarah, the last part of her pregnancy and the beginning stages of Josiah's life. And when we moved um, out of a house where we were renting a bedroom, we finally had enough money saved up to buy our own vehicle and to move into our own apartment. So I had my family, and I had a place to live that I had worked for. It was a sense of accomplishment, and, and I, was, I was home. You know, it was, I had a family. Um, but I didn't know the whole time that she is, was unfaithful. Um, she got a job while I was at home, and uh, I was able to be at home with Josiah full time. Uh, well, she worked, but it got to the point when she got off work, she stopped coming home. Um, there's nights that she would spend completely away from the house or when she came home late. You know, it makes you think. It made me think that there's something wrong. There's something going on. Um, I, I thought and I pretty much knew that she had been having affairs or cheating on me. And when I would bring it up to her, um, it would just turn into raging fights. And next thing you know, we're fighting all the time, and it's bad. And the more time away she's from the house, the worse it is. And, you know, Josiah essentially was now growing up in the same kind of environment that I grew up in. And I remember the time that it hit me the hardest is we were nose-to-nose -nose yelling at each other. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Josiah. And I think it's by the grace of God that I just stopped, and I turned, and I looked. And I saw in that six-month-old face, the same look that I remember having watching my parents fight. He was scared, and you could tell that he was hurt. And so I stopped right then and there, and I told her, I said, look, you know, we can't be doing this. I promised myself that I would not do this to my children. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take Josiah, bring him up to Humboldt County, drop him off with my dad, and I'm going to go back down to Grass Valley, and you and I are going to hash this out without Josiah having to witness everything that we've been doing, without having to see the fighting and everything that is going to have to happen for us to figure this out. And she agreed to it. And so uh, <clears throat> I drove Josiah up to my dad, and I spent the night. And uh, the next day I was getting ready to go home, and I asked my dad to help me load up the car so I could go home. And he said, no, I'm not going to help you. And I said, well, why? You know, He said, because you're not going home. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, Josiah's mom called, and... Uh, she moved her boyfriend into your house, changed the locks, and your stuff's in the garage. And just like that, everything that I had worked for for so many years was gone. Um, I was pretty upset. I was mad. And what I wanted to do was go back down to Grass Valley and take back what was mine, take back my house, take back my stuff. And, I mean, I, I, I envisioned myself just beating the crud out of this guy. Um, but my dad talked with me, and he, he helped me realize that if I were to do something like that, that ultimately Josiah would be a victim. And I knew that the best thing to do would just be let it go, uh, let her have it. Um, to try to take it back or to do anything otherwise would have been detrimental to my son. And so I became homeless. Um, I moved back down to Grass Valley. Um, I moved in with a couple of friends. They let me stay there. And uh, it got to the point where I couldn't even see my son. Um, so I stopped caring again. 
it, it, it hurt. And I started to, to party and, and smoke and drink a lot more. And I stopped being in contact with my probation officer. Um, so they violated my probation, put a warrant out for my arrest, and after a few months of being on the run, they brought me back and put me in jail here in Humboldt County. And being back in jail after all this had happened with the pain, undealt with pain and the memories of my childhood and now another failed family and the pain associated with that, I'd say that this was the darkest time of my life. I, I had no reason to smile. I didn't want to smile. I, I hated people. I hated people that could smile. I hated to see families having a good time um, because all it did was remind me of what I couldn't have and what I wanted so bad for myself and, and for Josiah. Um, so when you're on a probation violation, probation officer comes and they do an interview with you to find out what happened, why you violated so on and so forth so that she can make a recommendation to either revoke probation or reinstate probation and give you another chance, but you still have to suffer the consequences of violating, like more jail time or you know, it's some kind of a drug rehab program or so on and so forth. Um, so when she came and visited me, I told her exactly what happened. And she made it sound like that she was going to recommend that she reinstates my probation so that I could get back down to Grass Valley and, and work uh, on being a dad um, because she saw that that was you know, my motivation. However, when I received her report before going to court, in her report it said that, you know, I tested dirty for marijuana while on probation. Um, but in addition to that, she said I tested positive for cocaine, heroin, and that I attempted suicide and was hospitalized for it, which I had never done. Um, never tried heroin, tried cocaine when I was earlier on when I was 18 years old, but never did it since. So with that on there, her recommendation was not what it said. She was not recommending to reinstate my probation. She was recommending to impose the full original sentence, suspended sentence of seven years, eight months. And so I started to panic. Um, I didn't want to have to go to prison, you know, for lies. Um, I knew that my chances were not looking good. Um, so when I went to court, you know, when you're, when you're in jail, and you have a court date, you don't go to court by yourself. You go to court with everybody else who has a, goes to court that day at the same time. And so you sit in a holding cell before your court date. And there's like 15, 20 people in a big cell. And I'm in a really bad mood. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm probably looking pretty angry. And I'm pacing back and forth. And this guy stops me. And he says, hey, you know, what are you going to court for? And I ignored him. Um, but then there's people blocked my pass, so I ended up having to stand by him. And so he starts complaining about a probation officer that he had who lied on his probation report and is also recommending that he goes to prison. And so that perked up my ears and I asked him who his probation officer was. And it turns out it was the same probation officer that I had. And so, you know, I, I, I thought that that was odd. But then when we went to court, we were shackled together because you go shackled next to somebody so that you don't run off or you don't jump over and attack the judge or anybody, yada, yada, yada. So this guy and I had the same probation officer, and she lied on his probation report just like mine, and we were shackled together. And uh, so I'm sitting in court watching, listening to everybody else's court proceedings going on, and I'm scanning the courtroom, and I'm looking pretty angry. And this is actually the first time that I laid eyes on my wife. Um, <laughs> 
Janet and I, you know, I didn't know who she was, but I thought, dang, that girl's beautiful, you know, and then we locked eyes, and the second we locked eyes, we held the gaze for a minute, but then she turned away, because I think I still had the angry look on my face, and if you ask her, she'll say that she was intimidated, and she looked away, Um, but she was there to support Jason, the guy that I was shackled to, Um, so anyways, the court proceedings happened, and As a matter of routine, the judge looked at the probation officer's recommendation and looked at all my, you know, supposed dirty tests, and he was pretty much going down the road of sentencing me to prison for the full seven years, eight months, which meant that I would have been away from Josiah for the first nearly decade of his life. Um, But I was able to talk my public defender into listening to me, which is rare, and I said, hey, look, you know, these things are false, you know, these things are true over here, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, this needs to change, and so... My public defender was able to talk the judge into sending the report back to the probation officer for an amendment, um, which he did, and it came back later that, you know, she removed those three things, but she still recommended the sentence to seven years, eight months. Um, But by the grace of God, um, the judge did not sentence me to seven years, eight months. They sentenced me to a year in jail with a day suspended and that I go to a rehabilitation program but the catch is, is that while you're sitting there for that year in jail, you can apply to different rehabilitation programs. And if you can find one to get into during that year, they'll let you out of jail and count that year for time served if you complete the uh, program. Um, you know, like I said, this was a, a bad time in my life. I was, I was really angry. And I got a jailhouse tattoo, and I tattooed myself pain across my knuckles. And I used a sharpened paper clip, uh, shaved graphite from a pencil mixed with toothpaste and water as the ink. And I really scratched those tattoos in. And uh, I made it a point to let everybody know around me that I was angry, that you should give me a wide berth. And uh, people left me alone. And that's, I liked it. Um, and my dad starts to come see me in jail in my darkest time. And he starts preaching forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness for the stuff that he did in my childhood. And, you know, I was able to forgive him because he actually was sincere. And then he started to tell me that I should forgive my mother, who didn't ask for forgiveness and and still will deny to this day anything that she had ever done. Um, And then he starts talking about Jesus again. And that is the last thing that I wanted to hear at that time was Jesus. Um, But it was exactly what I needed. Um, It turned out that my dad doing legwork for me while I was in in jail waiting to go to a program, he, he called a place called the Mountain of Mercy in Honeydew, and they had an available bed, which means I, I, I could get out of jail like six months early, but it was a Christian-based program. So I denied it for like the first three months. I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to have anything to do with Christians or anything, um, but I got tired of sitting in jail. And so I decided that, all right, you know, I'll go, I'll go to this program. I'll do what I have to do to get through it. I'll fake it to make it, so to speak. That's the saying. Um, and so I accepted the bed into the program. And I hadn't seen my son in a very long time, ever since I'd been sitting in jail. So the day that I got released, that I had to go to the program, my dad met me. And when I came out of jail, getting ready to go to the Mountain of Mercy, I saw a little boy uh, standing next to my dad. It was Josiah. He was big. I, I hardly recognized him. Um, but when he saw my face and recognized me, he, didn't, he, he wasn't happy. He, he looked angry, and he turned to run off. 
but I wasn't letting him go. I ran him down, picked him up in my arms, and started to play with him and hug him, and he wrapped his arms around my neck, and he yelled, Daddy. And uh, I actually smiled, and I meant it. Um, and it felt really good. So I had a four-hour window between going to jail and going up to the Mountain of Mercy, and I got to spend that four hours with my dad and my now stepmom and my son, Josiah. And I was kind of excited to be out of jail, not excited to go to the program. Um, like I said, I didn't want to have anything to do with Christians, Jesus, or anything that came along with it. Um, so we took the long trip up the hill, got to the Mountain of Mercy, and uh, when I got there, you know, these happy Christians came out and they hugged me and they're singing praise songs to themselves and I thought, Ugh, what am I doing here? What did I get myself into? I didn't want to have anything to do with them, but you know, I was there and uh, I was better than, than being in jail or so I thought. Now this is where God really started to bring me back. My first night at the Mountain of Mercy, I had a very, very, very bad dream. Um, I believe that it was a dream sent from God. It was a dream that scared me enough to where I did not want to fall asleep again the next night. Um, and so, just out of sheer desperation, a pastor came up to preach and I had him pray with me. You know, please pray for me. I don't want to dream this again. You know, I didn't ask for anything else. And so he did. And uh, when I went to sleep and never had that dream, it's, you know, I started to see that as an answered prayer. And then, you know, the more the program progressed, the more that I started to come back to Christ, and he started to work on me and started to heal a few things. And next thing you know, well, not next thing you know, um, one thing I, I should have said earlier, Jason Thompson, the guy I was shackled to in court, ended up being at the Mountain of Mercy, the guy that had the same probation officer who lied on his report as well. So I immediately had somebody there that you know I could, I could relate with, and we got along, and... Um, we got determined, and I really started to make a strong effort um, at, at turning my life around. Um, I was doing good in the program. Uh, and I got a, Jason and I got uh, word from my probation officer that she wanted to see us. And anytime your probation officer says she wants to see you, it's never a good thing. So we were nervous, but when we went and saw her, she said that, you know, you guys are done with the Mountain of Mercy. We don't think that this program's efficient. I'm sending you down to San Diego, me. Um, and you have three weeks between coming out of the Mountain of Mercy today until you have to go back down to San Diego. And uh, so Jason and I spent a lot of time together, and this is where my wife started to come around. And we started to hit it off. Um, we were hanging out a lot. But I knew that it wasn't a good time for me to be interested in women. I mean, who, who in their right mind would want to be interested in a probation or on a probation violation getting ready to go down to a second rehab? Well, Janet was, and I thought she was insane. Um, but she said that she saw something in me that I didn't see, and so we stuck together, and she supported me for those three weeks, and we kept in contact. And we built a relationship when I got down into San Diego over, you know, over the phone, through letters, and it got to the point where we really fell in love. I mean, she was sticking by me. She was encouraging me. She would pray with me on the phone, and it was a good time. I started to excel in the program down in San Diego, um, working very hard. I was given a position of responsibility in the first phase of the program, which you don't get into the second phase, and things were moving right along. And while I was in the program, I got word from my dad that he was getting married, wanted me to be a groomsman in his wedding. <clears throat> so 
So I came up to Humboldt County to be in the wedding, and uh, Janet and I got to spend a lot of time, and I knew that Janet and I knew that we wanted to get married, but I knew that if I was her dad, that I wouldn't want her to be interested in somebody like me. Um, so knowing that we wanted to get married, um, Janet and I thought it would be best that I would talk with her dad during this break to ask her hand in marriage, which I thought was absolutely insane, but I did it. And uh, I met with Ron, and I, I said, hey, look, can we go for a walk? And we went and we walked around this place, Grizzly Creek, and we were walking laps, and I'm telling him about my life, what Jesus is doing, how much I love his daughter, and I'm getting no response from this guy. And I'm thinking with every word that comes out of my mouth, I'm digging a deeper grave. Um, but as I'm trying to convince him to let me marry his daughter, he stops me and he says, you know, just stop talking. And he holds out his arms and he gives me a hug and he says, you can marry my daughter. Welcome to the family. And this man accepted me at the worst time of my life. And I saw that as, you know, an example of, of God's acceptance of sinners like me. Um, in forgiveness, you know, being forgiven in, in Jesus Christ and, and being adopted into a family when you don't deserve it. Um, I ended up getting kicked out of the program after that because I shaved my head for the wedding, which broke the program rules down in San Diego. And uh, <clears throat> I was able to get out of the program early, thinking that I was going to have to go back to jail because I, you know, technically violated my probation by getting kicked out of the program. But they actually vouched for me and was able to tell my probation officer and convince her to let me stay out. Um, so I didn't have to do a program, didn't have to do any more rehab. Um, but one thing that I learned getting out of this program was that it's easy to sit in recovery in this environment of learning how to change your life and turn your life around, to picture yourself recovery, use, utilizing the tools necessary. But... When push came to shove, I was staying with my dad in Carlotta. I found that a lot of the pain, a lot of the stuff that I was going through was still there and undealt with. And I became overwhelmed. I became um, really insecure about Janet and I's relationship, uh, my ability to be a good, godly husband. And uh, I started to drink again and really take for granted um, you know, what God was doing in my life. And in drinking one night, I ended up wrecking my car. Uh, drinking and driving, and uh, which violated my probation again. And I had just started my new life. Um, but I knew God wasn't done with me. And Janet was still there for me. Um, Ron and Teresa were there, still there for me. And I went back to jail. And, you know, when you go through the court proceedings like that, you, you get a chance to have the judge determine whether or not he's going to release you to, you know, be out in what's called your own recognizance and still go to court or sit in jail um, while you go to court, which when you violate probation, you have to sit in jail. Um, so I knew that my second probation violation, the chances of me getting out on my own recognizance waiting to go to court was thin and that my chances of going to prison were very high. Um, it's standard and you violate the second time, you don't get any more chances. So at this time, Janet and I... Um, began to pray that, you know, God would somehow let me get out of jail, that I would turn my life around. And I knew that, you know, God was bigger than everything that was going on. And so my day before court, we started to fast and pray. 
And uh, I prayed that, that God would, you know, have his will, you know, have, have his way, you know, that his will would be done and that I would be accepting whether I got out of jail or whether I had to sit in jail and keep going to court. Um, <clears throat> and so we fasted and prayed. And when I went to court, um, the judge actually let me out of jail. And he shouldn't have. And uh, didn't mean that I still didn't have to go to court and suffer the consequences for the probation violation, but I didn't have to sit in jail, which people saw me fasting and praying. I, people thought that I was crazy because I told a few people that I was praying to get out. Um, but once God did that, he moved in the courtroom and I got out, which as far as I know it doesn't, hasn't happened. Um, it opened up an opportunity to be able to witness to a lot of people, uh, which was good. Um, so I ended up getting out and still having to go to court, still having to deal with the probation officer's recommendation to go to prison. Um, you know, I knew that I was just biding my time. And so I was enjoying life. And it so happened that a friend of Ron and Teresa got me a job with the city of Eureka. Well, she got me an interview with the job of the city of Eureka, but I was still going to court on a probation violation. And on, during the interview, I told them, hey, look, you know, I'm... I'm probationer, I'm on probation, I'm still going to court, I violated, da 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 I didn't think they were going to give me the job, but I was honest with them. They gave me the job. Um, and the day that they gave me the job, I called my probation officer and left her a message. And I said, hey, you know, these guys, they gave me a job. It's the city of Eureka. I start tomorrow. And uh, I got a phone call from her the next day, and she told me exactly how close I was to being sent to prison. And... Uh, she was in the middle of writing on my probation report and writing the recommendation to send me to prison when I called and left her that message telling her that I got a job with the city of Eureka. And she said that stopped her in her tracks right there, and she changed her recommendation to reinstate my probation and give me another chance. Um, so I was excited. Um, I had a chance to go to work and, and you know build what could have potentially been a really good career to take care of Janet when we were planning on getting married. Um, so to make a long story short, I, I ended up getting injured, lost the job with the city of Eureka, and satisfied my terms of probation and, and got off probation. And Janet and I were married at this point, and I'm trying to get a job after the city of Eureka, but having an injury, being put on workman's comp twice, and having a, a record, having to check the, have you ever been convicted of a felony box on applications turned a lot of people away. And you know, having Josiah in my life and having a new wife to take care of you know, I knew something needed to change. And so I decided to petition the court and have my felonies reduced to misdemeanors so that I could honestly say no on the job applications um, to the answer to the question of whether or not you've committed a felony. And my day in court came, and I had Alan. He wrote a letter, a character letter um, to the judge, you know, advocating for me. Janet's parents did the same. And the judge, when it came my turn, the judge <clears throat> took it one step further. And I had no idea what was going to happen. But he started to tell me, you know, if the district attorney said, hey, you shouldn't reduce this guy's felonies, you know, he's a dangerous society, whatever they said. And the judge said, well, I've already made a determination in this case. He says, Mr. Sussmilch, I am removing your pleas of guilty on your previous crimes. I am entering pleas of not guilty, accepting those pleas of not guilty, and your charges are dismissed. And, and 
instead of having them reduced to misdemeanors, I went from being a convicted felon guilty to having no criminal record whatsoever and un completely undeserving of it. Um, but it's by the grace of God. Janet and I, you know, Christ had restored my life. He had restored my relationship with Josiah's mother and I, and it got to the point where we were able to share custody with Josiah. And now here I was, you know, no felony record. I've turned my life around. And uh, Amen. you know, that's, that's where I'm at today. I, I uh, ended up going through the police academy um, because I had no felony record. I, I wanted to give back to the community that I had taken from. I wanted to make my life count and provide a living for my family. Unfortunately, due to my past, I was always honest um, with potential law enforcement agencies. Um, and they still wanted to hire me despite everything that I'd been through. And I was the number one candidate for about five or six different agencies, um, but was never able to land a job. Um, after after being unsuccessful during the police academy to land a job after graduating, I applied for a job with PG&E as a nuclear security officer, which is a highly coveted position for law enforcement, former military in Humboldt County. There were over 200 applicants. They interviewed 75 people, and they had five slots. And once again, I was honest with them. I told them everything that I had been through, everything that I had done, and you know where I was at. And they ended up giving me one of the five slots to be a nuclear security officer, an armed responder at you know the Humboldt Bay Power Plant. Um, unfortunately, um, the FBI didn't like me. You have to get cleared by the federal government to be able to work at a nuclear site. And uh, so after being hired and working for a month, I got fired. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really hard for Janet and I because there was job security in that, there was benefits in that, and there was good pay to take care of my family. Um, so I spent the next year of my life trying to find a job um, you know, the job market in 2009 wasn't very great, but through my grandmother, I got a job as a hospital liaison for St. Joseph Hospital, and I worked there uh, for about nine months, was doing really well, and in September 2010, I had a grand mal seizure and <clears throat> found out I had other multiple health issues and ended up being placed on disability, which I'm still on now. Um, For two years, from 2010 up until July last year, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. For two or three months, or I averaged two or three trips a month to the emergency room for about two years and found out I had almost two dozen ulcers in my stomach. I have a condition called basilar artery migraines and uh, didn't have any real physical relief. Uh, but of July of last year, I was able to see a neurologist who was, gave a good diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis. They put me on medication, and I'm able to stay out of the hospital. I haven't been in the hospital too many times. I still go every once in a while. But my ulcers are healed. My life is healed. My relationships are healed. And I can stand before you today, and I can tell you that God's grace and mercy on guilty sinners like me manifested itself not only spiritually but physically in my life and he answered a lifelong prayer 
and now I have the family that I've always dreamt of, that I've always wanted, and by the grace of God, I, I will be continue to learn to be a better husband, to be a better father, but in his grace and mercy, I'm there. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Sorry it took so long. I gotta learn how to speak in front of people. I gotta learn how to speak in front of people. Oh, you did fine. Everybody was listening. There wasn't anybody impatient with it. God is sovereign. God is good. I don't deserve what I have. That's why I don't take it for granted. <laughs> None of us do. So. <laughs> <laughs>